Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Mastin Kip. Mastin is the author of two best-selling books and is a world-renowned public speaker, recognised by the likes of Oprah Winfrey, Tony Robbins and Ariana Huffington as a thought leader in accelerated life transformations. He's the creator of Functional Life Coaching, which differs from his peers and predecessors in that it focuses not just on rapid behavioural change, but on identifying and dissolving the root cause that is impending optimal human progress and success. He's helped over 2 million people in over 100 countries around the world and Mastin appears regularly on television and print and was featured on Oprah Winfrey's Emmy award-winning show, Super Soul Sunday, which I'm a big fan of as a leader of the next generation of spiritual thinkers. Mastin, thanks so much for being here. Oh my goodness. Very happy to be here. Not sure I can live up to all that, but uh, I'll do my best. (laughs) We can just end it now. Even in the face of people you can't stand underneath awful values and behavior which you just cannot justify is anywhere near okay underneath all of that you just dig 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 is almost certainly trauma first of all what what does that mean could you maybe just explain what we mean by this yeah so just a couple things before we get into it so the reason why we talk about trauma is because it's the most important thing to talk about and so you know there's all these incredible people coming out teaching strategies of marketing and business and personal development and fitness and nutrition and all those strategies go out the door unless you've done your trauma work like you're not going to have a great relationship you're not going to earn any money you're not going to be able to sustain a business uh, because it's you really get in your own way for lots of actually really good reasons. So it's important to say that for context. The other thing is, is that as I go through today and I explain what trauma is and uh, acknowledge that everybody has it regardless of their behavior or values, it's not an endorsement of uh, misogyny, racism, abuse, etc. And um, a lot of people who uh, are really well-intended, when they talk about taking personal responsibility for their life, they think, I have to take responsibility for my actions and somebody else's actions, and that's over-responsible. And I'm also not suggesting that either because everyone has their own stuff. And so when I start to break this down, I just want to be really clear, if when you're, someone's listening to this, if you're listening to this, just think about it in the context of you and your experience, and everyone else has their own experience. And so we're not justifying abuse. We're not justifying racism. We're not justifying misogyny. We're not suggesting that the person who is the perpetrator of something is now the victim. None of that. And those are some of the misconceptions uh, that I just want to acknowledge up front so that we can get into the actual conversation around trauma. So um, trauma – um, has many different sort of facets. There's physical trauma where you know you get a cut or some egregious wound and we see that in like emergency rooms. <clears throat> and then there's emotional trauma. And emotional trauma is more or less, at least for now, invisible. It's a feeling place and it's not just abuse. It's not just uh, violence. You can um, unintentionally have a very well-intended parent who's very present for you physically but not emotionally and not cued into your emotional needs, and that creates a level of emotional abandonment as a child, um, emotional neglect. Um, a relationship breaking up or a divorce can be traumatizing. Certainly being an entrepreneur is like living in trauma consistently. That's why you need resilience. Um, relationships, the trauma comes to the surface, You know how each other are wired and you get a chance to heal it. Um, you know, being in a soul sucking job can be traumatizing. Forgot to grade school, you know, can be traumatizing. So lots of things create this trauma. And what happens is that it, 
early in someone's process, they, they cope with it in what I'll call low-level coping. So it might be drugs or alcohol, promiscuity, and just sort of the baseline, you know, the opioid crisis is huge in America. Um, you know, um, there's lots of different ways to cope with it that are not good for the body. But then, without addressing it, you upgrade your life and you have high-level coping, like a yoga class or biohacking or, you know, different ways of kind of putting butter in your coffee or measuring your sleeping performance or whatever it is. And certainly getting those data points is important. But there's no biohack that's going to outhack emotional trauma, which is emotional wounding. And so that's where functional coaching comes in because I'm a big fan of all the things I've talked about, meditation and green juicing and yoga. But without doing the trauma work, it becomes high-level coping. And then you have a business that's successful, but you're full of stress and anxiety. Or you have a real successful financial month, but then the relationship deteriorates. Um, and especially as an entrepreneur and business owner, you know, I see this trend of what I'll call entrepreneurial isolation, where people just very isolated in what they're doing because maybe the people around them don't understand and the people who are like them aren't near them. And so they're you know on their computer or on their phone or on their smartphone or on the social media thing, liking different things, but they feel very alone. That can also be traumatizing as well. And there's a lot of statistics about the mental health of entrepreneurs you know, skyrocketing out of control. All of these things are caused by emotional trauma that has gone unresolved. And so what functional life coaching is all about is saying, yes, we want to move your life forward. And yes, we want to talk about hacks and best practices and limiting beliefs and reframing and all those things that standard coaching does. But we also look at, well, what happened in the past and how did your nervous system cope with what happened in the past? And how is that actually a brilliant response? Because no matter what your response is, it could be a anxiety response, a depression response, it could be um, a narcissistic response or a codependent response, it could be an entrepreneurial response. Like there's lots of things that people respond to trauma with. There's a brilliance in it because it helps keep you safe. And the nervous system starts to think that that type of a response will make someone safe and lovable. And what happens is you start to raise your standards and you start to realize yesterday's medicine has become today's poison. What should I do? Let me reframe it. Let me hack my sleep or let me do something. But nothing quite gets in the way of it. And we just it sort of manifests as just chronic stress and depression. So um, that's what functional coaching is really all about. And it's emotional wounding caused by lots of things. And if you have any level of stress, any level of anxiety, any level of sadness or depression, there is trauma there. So um, that would be sort of my bottom line sort of you know, encapsulation of this topic. Does this tie into that you talked about the um, the analogy of stepping on a nail? Is this? Tell me about <laughs> that. I like that. Yeah, I, I think that was Tom Billy who asked me that question. You know, w- when it comes to like medical things um, and fitness, we have this understanding that it has to become a lifestyle. So the analogy I think it was is that if you step on a nail, you know, what would you do? You know, you would feel it; it'd be painful. And then you would look at it and you would assess like how bad is it? If it's bad enough, you go to the emergency room. If it's not that bad, then you just, you know, go get the first aid kit and then you would clean it out. And if you went to the emergency room, they would clean it out. They would, you know, put some stitches on it, maybe give you some pain medicine, say stay off of it for a week or two, you know, standard rice protocol, rest, ice, compression, elevation, make sure to keep the wound clean. And then over a period of a few weeks or a month or so, you would be back on your feet and you do a little bit of rehab, and then you go about your life. And ten years later, you wouldn't be sitting there going, "Well, God damn it, that one time with my nail in my foot." You know, you wouldn't be worried about it. You would just be moving on. Maybe you'd see a scar every once in a while, but that's not how we do things emotionally. What we do is we hit a nail. Like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm not going to look at it. Don't talk about it. You can't acknowledge the negative. Voldemort will show up, and only positive things. 
So I'm just gonna, I, you know, I, I'm not, I am, I am healthy, I am vibrant, I can walk with ease, even though there's pain, right? <laughs> and and we ignore it, and depending on how long you ignore it, don't be surprised if one day you look down and your whole left leg has gangrene, right? Because you've ignored a wound. And the problem with emotional trauma is it's for now invisible, so it's really hard to like see it fester because it kind of gr- grows on you slowly, and these emotions can become very gripping. And you know, you can think that everything's great, but then one, two, or three things change in your life, and bam, there you are back in the feeling again. So it's something that you have to maintain vigilance around, just like a diet. You don't think to yourself like people will think, "Oh, Mass, I'll come to one of your seminars for four days, and then I'm good from then on out." And it's like, no, no, no. If you went to a, if you like ate right and exercised well for four days, you're not going to have a six pack for the rest of your life if you don't do anything. And there's this idea that I can just do it once and then I have handled it versus realizing it's a lifestyle change. The neural pathways and the responses never really go away. So I have to be on guard. It's very much like a virus where it can be dormant for a while and they can flare up. And so you want to be on guard for the flare-ups, and that's what you know functional coaching is all about. And a lot of the practices that I believe in are really all about how to acknowledge this. And so when the flare-up happens, you're not denying it and pushing it away and projecting it onto others and you know tearing down your business or ruining your relationships. And you are able to handle it and clean it up and move forward with it. And it's you know we understand it when it's a physical thing or when it's about fitness, but the internal emotional stuff is a little bit harder to understand because for now it's not as it's not visible. Why why do you think we have such a blind spot? I mean when you when you use that analogy between physical and emotional it's such an it's so obvious like of course if you eat well for four days and then just stop like we, we get that that is you, you it almost seems crazy if you don't get that like why what why do we have such a blind spot with the emotional stuff well i i look at things a little bit more from a biological lens sometimes and if you think about like evolution you know you know we've all probably seen the lion king movie and it starts with this beautiful montage and the song, The Circle of Life, and every time I hear it, I cry, and it's like amazing. It's one of Disney's best films. Like I love that movie. But if you actually had a physical video of what The Circle of Life actually looked like, you'd see a bunch of mammals eating each other alive. Okay, That's what you'd see. Okay, And it would be so intense. It would be like you wouldn't be able to air it on any TV station. And you know, if you think about it, like you know, especially lower-level mammals – there's, I mean, if you go to like the monkey forest in Bali, if you go to, you know, anywhere where there's just normal mammals doing normal mammal things, they're eating each other alive and they're basically committing sexual assault all the time, right? Like it's like that's the circle of life actually. And somehow human beings have evolved out of that muck and formed things like law and values and murder. I mean, if you think about the Ten Commandments, like the big aha from Moses was like, don't kill each other, guys. Like that was the aha moment of the age, right? And don't have sex with that guy's wife. Like knock it off, right? And we still haven't really learned that lesson, but comparatively, and and, and I am not for factory farming, but if you look at how like a animal dies in a factory farm versus how they die in the wild, I would take factory farming any day over how these animals treat each other because it's so intense, now, I'm not for factory farming. Again, it's not an endorsement of it, but it's we've evolved out of this very violent world. We've evolved from a lot of violence and, and, and trauma of the past. And so when we wake up and we start to realize, like in the early 19th century, like, oh, this mind creates something. Like we can think something into existence. Like that was the whole idea of, uh, you know, think and grow rich. Right? It was like my thoughts create something. And then we have all these mental models of Freud and Jung and all, you know, William James and all these people that are developing these models, Erickson and Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir and all of these different psychological models 
And then people still aren't changing. And then we start to realize, well, there's something somatic happening here. And then you get the work of like Siegel and Peter Levine and Dr. Stephen Porges emerging in this whole trauma-informed perspective. And then you go even deeper into like genomics and like little tiny molecules and start to realize that, holy shit, epigenetics, like trauma gets passed down generationally. And it's like, yeah, it would make sense from a biological perspective why there is war and rape and these types of things, not endorsing it. But it's, if you look at the past of what we've evolved from, that's normal. And so we're flushing out um, these values that are no longer necessary like racism. There was a time where racism was probably a good survival response thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago when the tribe was coming to rape and pillage your village. You know, there was a time where that was a good thing. Now it's just an echo of a past that doesn't serve us anymore. So that's what I mean by yesterday's medicine has become today's poison. There was a time where, you know, these things were so commonplace. And now with what's happening with technology and all that we're learning about how the body works and epigenetics and the genomics and all the somatic and trauma work, like all this inner stuff that we're starting to be able to weigh and measure, we've never had access to stuff like that before. And we're starting to see like, wow, like we can actually get along. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, you know, human beings develop the ability to cooperate and to have empathy and compassion. And those are actually evolutionary benefits because we need to be together and co-regulate for our survival. We can't do it on our own. And so if you look at it purely from the lens of evolution, we've evolved from a very traumatic history and things are not awesome right now. I'm not saying things are awesome, but comparatively to how they were 10 or 20,000 years ago, it's a lot better. Even 100 years ago, women couldn't vote, you know, black people couldn't vote. Like there was a lot of things that weren't possible 100 years ago. And so there's been a rapid progress if you think about it in the context of thousands and thousands of years. In the last 100 years, we've made rapid progress. We still have a long way to go, but it's still the trauma work and I really feel like Part of our evolution into whatever we're becoming next in our planetary societies and stuff like that, um, you know, self-initiated entrepreneurs and consultants and like owning our own destiny. Like one of the things that has to happen to sustain that is we have to be able to learn how to heal this trauma thing so that we're not acting like, you know, our – you know, uh, predecessors and just eating each other alive. Like we have to learn how to really collaborate. And so that's why whenever I do this work, I'm not endorsing anyone's specific behavior and certainly I'm not endorsing the values of racism and xenophobia, but in the context of biology and evolution, it makes sense. And when you can see it through that lens, you can start to have compassion for people who really just have blind spots around this. And when someone really feels seen, heard, and loved and recognized, they drop a lot of those defensive values. And the other thing is, is that people, most people, don't believe what they say they believe. They say what they believe to fit into a tribe, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. So if you give them a better option to fit into another tribe where they're accepted for who they really are, then the truth starts to emerge. So we're like in the middle of, of, of this massive upheaval and identification of all the wounds we've endured emotionally for a very long period of time. And that's why the world seems like it's kind of going crazy right now. All these wounds have always been there, but because of the internet and technology, we're just more aware of it and more connected than ever before, more connected to the resources and more connected to the um, outcomes and more connected to what's possible, but also more connected to the wounding and the hurt. And so that's what's happening today. And you're seeing women speaking up in the Me Too movement. So time, it's so necessary. It's so needed today. You're seeing the Time's Up movement evolve. You're seeing, you know, Supreme Court nominees being stopped and paused and victims being listened to. It's a big, big deal. You're seeing very powerful people in Hollywood and entertainment and media, you know, having reckonings because 
the time has come for this trauma conversation to emerge and it's happening in front of our very eyes. And so for me, I mean, I've had a front row seat to it for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, it's, it's amazing to see it at such a large scale, but to really solve the problem, the goal is to understand that trauma is like a virus. It's everyone has it. And so while we can jail certain people and put certain people away and not tolerate certain values, if we really want to get through this process, this is when we really need to practice like the idea of love your neighbor as yourself, you know, love your enemy. I mean, Martin Luther King said that he was quoting Jesus. Like these are like timeless ideas. And it's, I think more important now than ever to love something without accepting it and tolerating the values. If that makes any sense. Yeah. No, there's a huge difference, isn't there? There between to try and understand it does not mean that you condone it. It's totally different. You know, that's right. I, um, we had on, you know, maybe six months ago, a guy called, um, I don't know if you come across Christian, um, Picciolini, who used to mm. be, um, he used to be second in command of the American neo-Nazis turned peace activist. He basically spent oh, the first wow. half of his life building neo-Nazi movement. And then spent the last 20 years, he has a foundation called Life After Hate, where he tries to take violent extremists and try and bring them back. And we were talking a lot about compassion and empathy, especially in, especially when you see stuff which you clearly do not agree with. It's disgusting. It's, it, it, it makes you feel sick. But even more so then just to, to, just to listen and to be open. And for, you mentioned, um, somebody to feel heard, listened to, loved. That is huge. That's right. Your, your moonshot, your, your life mission is to end emotional trauma. What would you say the biggest roadblock standing in the way of that is? What's the one or two things which are really knock those down first? Do you see? Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. And, and, and by the way, I want to, I've, I've sort of slightly modified that because, um, I thought about like how dark that could go, and like I could imagine some AI in the future analyzing this conversation and saying, "Oh, yes, that's a good idea. We have to end emotional trauma. Human beings are traumatized. We'll kill all the humans, and trauma's gone." Right? So, so I don't mean like and kill all the people, like not some like Elon Musk future, right? Like, like so, like end trauma so that human beings can thrive and 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 the human spirit can thrive. Um, but I think that the biggest thing is, I think right now more than anything else, is to be able to just have the conversation about it. Because I think, like, I view trauma work similar to how, in many ways, meditation was viewed about 15 or 20 years ago, where it was very esoteric, it was very strange, it wasn't something that was a high performance tool, it was sort of something weird people did. And now, you know, if you're not meditating, then you're not a cool entrepreneur. You know, like, like you're not doing the best self care that you, cause we know how powerful meditation is. So my, my goal is to normalize the conversation first and foremost about trauma. And if we can just get everyone educated and informed, like you have it, I have it, we all have it. That would be a huge first step. And, and to understand that that doesn't justify what's been done to anybody. It's not, I'm not saying like, for example, Larry Nasser, who just did atrocious things to the women's gymnastics, uh, uh, participants for years and years and years, like clearly he was passing on trauma, but that doesn't justify what he did. He should be in jail. 100% what he did was wrong, but to really have a conversation and to about changing to make sure shit like that never happens again, you got to have conversations about the trauma because if you're not talking about trauma, you're talking about the wrong stuff to solve the problem. So being able to normalize the conversation about trauma without there having to be a justification or excusing of the behavior I think would be a huge first step because the shame and the guilt and hiding in the shadows, I think all that would lessen and we'd be able to share it a lot better. Well said. That's huge. <laughs> the, the physiology of shame is the physiology of trauma. 
So like the neurotransmitters, the emotional states, like the physiology, like basically when you're living in shame, you're essentially re-traumatizing yourself over and over and over and over and over and over again. And when you can share it, what's most traumatizing isn't necessarily – it's very clear in the data. It's not what people go through that's traumatizing. It's how they go through it when it happens, and it's also how they hold it later. Do they hold it by themselves? Do they share it? Is it witnessed and seen and heard and felt and, and, and validated, or is it denied? You know, and so I think that's a really, really big deal. And part of part of healing shame is is witnessing it, you know, and but then not lingering in it. And that's the hard part. <laughs> mm. Okay, so that's key. So you like to witness it, to talk about it, but then rather than just going to therapy every week and keep on let's dig it up again, let's dig it up again to recognize it, to put it in the light, and then what? Let it go. Yeah, because well, what happens is there's phases, right? So like when someone's traumatized and they hold it by themselves and they share it, there's this relief of like, oh my god. I'm not alone, right? And they get a lot of praise and a lot of connection from that experience. However, it's kind of like getting sober. Like once you get sober, that's a huge milestone, right? But at some point you go, and what else? I'm sober, now what, right? And that's when the purpose and the fulfillment and the growth and the contribution and all the good, the gifts of sobriety start to come in. And the same thing is true when you're healing from trauma. I don't like to use the word victim because I think that word has been so overused. So I'm not going to use that word. But what I will say is when someone experiences trauma, they become a lot more passive in how they engage with the world and they get more on the defense and they do being proactive. And so at some point, once your wound has been witnessed and validated, staying in that long term creates commiseration, which is definitely more healthy than holding it all by yourself. But commiserating only and reliving it only and blaming people only keeps you stuck in a certain level. At some point, you have to take a more proactive um, approach to how your life is going to move forward. And once it's witnessed and validated and heard and seen and felt, you say, and now I am in charge of how I respond moving forward. That's on me. So I'm going to be more proactive in my response and start to realize that no matter what somebody did to me, I was victimized back then, but that does not prevent me from being proactive in how I respond moving forward. But you can't just go straight into that. That's what happens is that people sort of just say, oh, yeah, just reframe it and move forward. Like, no, like the wound has to be witnessed, but it then has to be sewn up and healed because otherwise you're, harp, you're, harp, you're sort of harboring that and harping on it and bonding over the wound only. And uh, one of my mentors, Carolyn Mace, has a term for that. She calls it woundology, where all you do is speak wound. It's their fault. They did this to me. Always this, never that. Like those types of wording is, and that that puts you more in a passive stance or a passive um, passenger seat in your uh, life, versus realizing you're the driver and you can be far more proactive and it's safe to be proactive. But it's a process to get there. So um, what's happening today is that the, a lot of people have been hurt and victimized are starting to wake up and speak the truth. And um, what I am excited about is to have every person who's speaking up and feeling victimized lit- listened to and witnessed and heard and validated. And then get into now what we're going to do about it with your life. How will you be proactive in your response? How will you be proactive in your purpose? How can you stop? How can the cycle end with you? And um, that's, that's a phased process. And if you look at a lot of the guys who've been speaking up in the Me Too movement, they've been silenced and there's been backlash because instead of just listening and witnessing, they're like, okay, but now what? 
what's your part in it? It's like, no, 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 hold on a second. That's like, that's like step three or four. Let's do steps one and two first. And so right now, I think the witnessing and the listening is very, very important. But long term, to be happy and to be fulfilled, you've got to be a lot more proactive in how you respond uh, to your emotions and to um, your, your history. You mentioned the word stop the cycle. Generation after generation after generation, passing down this hurt, which then, you know, if you were abused, then you might abuse and then they get abused. And then what? So as opposed to let's put that stamp on it. And so it's not generations more. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There, there is there is there are different types of trauma that have been studied and documented. And one of them is called generational trauma. And this is trauma that gets passed down generation to generation. And it's in the field of epigenetics. You can, you know, if you just Google like generational trauma in quotes and then like study or like generational trauma study epigenetics or generational trauma epigenetics, all these studies will come up and you can start to see how we literally pass down the resilience and the trauma from one person to the other. And so that's a, certainly something that's true. And then there's relational trauma, which happens in the family of origin stuff and then in relationship. And then there's shock trauma where like you went through something like 9-11 or something very intense. Um, but then there's relational trauma in response to like shock trauma. You know, someone might have been abused, but then no one talks about it. And then you have complex trauma where you might have generational trauma, shock trauma, and relational trauma all in one. Right. So, and that's called complex trauma. So, there's lots of different responses to when someone is traumatized. How do they respond? There is post traumatic stress response, which is well documented. There's also post traumatic growth. That's less documented, but still something, a phenomenon that occurs. And so, there's lots of ways people respond to trauma. But whether you choose to lash out or hold, there's two different sort of opposing, it's kind of like binging and fasting. Neither one's too good for you. So you want to kind of neutralize that because it's not good to just completely disconnect and never engage again and never be in a relationship and you know just be all by yourself and isolate. That's not good. But then also like lashing out and that's not good either. So we want to kind of find that, you know, that middle porridge where it's just right, where you're able to engage, you're able to, you know, uh, be in relationship and have it feel safe. And that takes some time. So, but there's lots of different ways people respond to trauma. Just like we're learning about food, where nutrition has to become personalized. There's no such thing as a universally healthy diet. There's no such thing as a universally healthy mental health process. Every single person has to have a personalized approach to identify how they've responded to trauma and then a personalized approach for how they're going to get out of that and heal that process too. But there are general principles that certainly work for mm-hmm. sure. There was some really interesting um, research that's come out quite recently um, where you're saying how um, it shows that if an emotion is triggered in the body, it takes only 90 seconds for all that juice and that emotion to actually run through the body before it stops. But the problem is that it keeps on getting re-triggered over and over and over again. So we could literally be, I think, 90 seconds away from this massive breakthrough for 10, 20, 30, 40 years if we actually just understood that it's, what, 90 seconds? That's crazy. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, is that like there's different things that stop that reactivity, right? So like, for example, um, my sort of trauma is all about sort of like not getting my needs met emotionally, right? So like there's this deep-seated fear in me that like everyone's going to leave and my needs will never be met. And so whenever I get into that physiology and I'm alone by myself, it's going to last so much longer than if I'm in a group of people who I love and care about, right? So it's not just 90 seconds away because that's certainly important. It's educating yourself that it is 90 seconds away, becoming self-aware of like there's that pattern again 
wow, okay, hello, Philly, you know, hello, darkness, my own friend, like <laughs> you are. Usually people feel it in the right side of the neck or in their diaphragm is where they kind of have a response. And the goal is to realize, ah, there you are again. Okay, what are my soothing strategies? I can call a friend. I can reach out. I can co-regulate. I can be with a group of loving people. I can take a bath. I can take care of myself. I can I can journal. And I can have you know my therapist or whatever it is. I can have my practices and protocols to be able to sort of get out of the process because people, you know, they either fight or they flee or they freeze and or they feign. And feigning is when they just adapt whatever someone else is doing, right? And so you want to realize, like, oh my God, I want to, I want to flee right now. You know what? Nope. I'm just going to slow down my breathing. I'm going to get 80% of my breath to be an exhale, and I'm going to feel my feelings, be present in my body, and let this thing pass. And it might not be 90 seconds because the thoughts are triggering it over and over and over again for a period of time. But that could be one way to deal with it. Being around a group of friends is so 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 important. Don't reach for the ice cream. Don't reach for the pretzels. Like. Give yourself the gift of of being able to interrupt that pattern and and, and co regulation, which means you know self regulation is you managing your own emotional state, which is kind of difficult. It's and long term it's impossible to do by yourself. And the mental health community will say you have to self regulate or we'll medicate you. But the latest research shows that self regulation and the cues for self regulation are embedded in relationship, right? So like it's impossible for someone to self regulate on their own long term. You have to be – we are communal, dyadic, uh, relational beings and like a tone of voice, a facial expression. These types of things are, can be so soothing. You know, like the sound of a mother's voice that's soothing to the child. That's an evolutionary advantage that we have as humans um, and we can have that in, in our life as well. So you know, going to a critical partner or a critical friend is not going to help you co-regulate. That's going to just help you be down-regulated, dysregulated. You want to go be in a supportive and nurturing environment, which is why things like 12-step and you know places where people meet are uh, so powerful. It's also why Jesus said in the Bible, you know, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. What he means is it's all about co-regulation, guys. If Jesus was a therapist, he would say, two or three of you guys got to get together and co-regulate. That's what he would say, you know. But it's the same kind of idea. You think there are some common patterns of success and common patterns of failure. What Could you maybe just share a couple of these? Sometimes I write stuff and say stuff and forgot what I said. So I'll tell you what's coming up right now, but Perfect. it might not be what you want me to say. Because you've done a lot of great research, and which is awesome for this interview. Um, I would say that, that for success, there's a couple of things. You have to have a mentor, a structure, and a system to follow. right? Like, Don't reverse engineer things. Uh, like You can reverse engineer things, but you want to be around people who know the road ahead, who know the path ahead. And I think that's a really important thing to be able to do and to realize that like it's all about co-regulation or environment. The environment that you're in consistently will be far more impactful on your long-term results than any mindset you try to maintain. And I'll give you a very basic example. Um, there's a place in uh, in America called Dunkin' Donuts, and it's it's a uh, it's like a donut shop. And like no mindset or willpower, if you lived and never left, Dunkin' Donuts will help you lose weight, okay? Like, maybe you go on a hunger strike, but most people would cave and probably give themselves diabetes over a period of time if they lived inside Dunkin' Donuts. Even if their whole mindset said, I am thin, I am healthy, I am you know, doing my exercises inside here, most people, it wouldn't happen. And so you want to make sure that you're set up to really be in a really positive and healthy environment. People who are what we call it, failure, people who don't produce the results. They try to do things by themselves. There's a level of isolation. Their environment's not supportive. And they're really in that passive place where they think other people are in more in control of their life than they are. Um, and they're not modeling people who have been there. They don't have a mentor structure or system. They think to themselves, I got it on my own. So trying to do stuff on your own, I think, is probably one of the 
in, in a sense, it's kind of cool because you can like break off into your own and start your own business. But you would still need a mentor and a tribe and a group of people to you know support you and lift you through that process because no one survives and succeeds in a vacuum. Doesn't happen. Mentor structure system. So mentor yep. structure system like that. Yeah. Mentor and then the structure is the is the tribe. That's the crew. That's the you got around. And then the system is the proven way which the mentor, either the books or the in person mentor, can actually give you. This is the map. Follow step A, B, That's C. Right. And the power of the mentor, um, I believe in live experiences because I think more yeah. things happen live. You're not distracted. You're in a, uh, there's a magic that happens in a live event that it's a, it's like large co-regulation opportunity. And I think that, um, the other thing is that's powerful about a mentor who's been there before is that you can take a step or try something and come and get feedback right away. Yeah. And that feedback processing mechanism I think is so powerful. And if you look at like Chick sent me high and the, uh, the flow, the book on flow, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that make flow possible. And I was into flow hacking today. One of the most important things about flow is to be able to have immediate feedback or rapid feedback so that you can pivot and go differently. And so it's a really, really important thing to have. And that's why I think a mentor is so vitally important. Why is a panic attack really a wake up call? Well, again, I'm not a mental health uh, expert um, or doctor or certified. I'm certified in Hatha yoga. Um, but what I've noticed um, in my experiential learning and data with thousands of clients over the last decade is that whenever someone's come to me with a panic attack, um, you know, if you can associate with it, it's your body is trying to get attention. Your, it's your attention, right? And the same thing's true for a psychotic break. You know, I've talked to uh, a lot of uh, emergency room nurses because I get uh, IV vitamins a lot uh, for my live events and to sustain my health when I'm traveling. I always ask um, the people who are giving me the IVs, which is usually an emergency room nurse who has a second job doing the IV stuff. I always ask about psychotic breaks. And the feedback consistently from every single person I've talked through is that they've never met a like a, a, a stupid – quote, crazy person who's having a psychotic break. They're always very wise. And what happens is that in a psychotic break or in a panic attack, it's like this part of your body that's trying to suppress things is like, no, right? And the truth of who you are is trying to break free. And I would say, I'd say at least 80, 90% of the time, your anxiety is your intuition because what you're feeling intuitively is something that is scary to do. So you're going to be anxious about it. So a lot of times when people ask me intuition versus anxiety, it's a lot of times the anxiety that you have is caused because you have this intuitive knowing that you're not following. And so if that's not followed and rejected for days, months, or years, then you're going to have a, quote, panic attack where the body's like, listen to me. And it's like, who names these things? Post-traumatic stress disorder, multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder, panic attack. Like It's like the news. It's like you watch something on the news and they, what they do and they, how they talk about it, it's all stressful and shit. You know, what if they just called it a body's wake-up call? What if they called it creative dissociation to cope with trauma? response you know it's like that's how i view things and so we've language just is so all- powerful isn't it the, the so language po- we use so then it suddenly becomes a negative or positive based on that's the right. language we use for it well and the thing is is that like you know don't get me started on the dsm uh five which is sort of the book that everybody uses to diagnose people and i get that we have to diagnose people but the word disorder is so wrong it is not a disorder because it's actually an appropriate response to the underlying trauma. Now, it doesn't mean that it's uh, it's adaptive. It's most of these disorders have become maladaptive, and people aren't getting a good result and not feeling good. But what happens is people say, "Oh, 
Okay, narcissistic personality disorder can't be cured, right? And it's like actually, it's narcissistic personality response to never having your needs met, right? And the same thing is true for a codependent response, never having your needs met. You cope in different ways. And so when we, uh, my one of my deep wishes is that um, the the next version of the DSM either never comes out. Or if it does, it's trauma-informed or a better diagnostic tool comes out that's trauma-informed because it's so vitally important that if someone's going to sit there at a, at a Veterans Affairs office or as a psychiatrist or as a mental health professional and diagnose someone with a PTSD or any of that shit, that they have to know the origin trauma and the root trauma. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's medieval to sit there and say, give me this symptom cluster, take this medicine, which we don't really know is what's happening exactly when you take it, and then you just have to cope the rest of your life. Like That is medieval torture, and it's something that should be abolished, and we need to have a trauma-focused process where people are realizing, like, actually, yes, you have a dissociative identity disorder, but that's because you had this crazy childhood trauma experience, and you actually are so creative in coping with your trauma that you invented seven personalities. Look at how good you are coping. And when people feel that way, I've talked to so many people with these different disorder diagnoses, and when they realize it's a response to trauma, that shame and all that stuff drops, and it's a really beautiful thing. So I'm not saying that we can't identify these patterns, but we have to identify them better, and it has to be a more informed approach. I always wonder, like, is the American Psychiatric Association, like, owned by Big Pharma? Because it's like, you can have a diagnosis for, like, I got out of the shower and now I'm cold, so I have post-hot shower bio <laughs> disorder. Like it's crazy like the things that they're like labeling now. Like you can't even go through a breakup without having postpartum something or other. It's like there are natural responses. So it, and the only thing that – the only people that really benefit are the pharmaceutical companies. So I just really feel like there's a whole bunch of um, trauma-informed therapists and practitioners out there who have so much data that says, you know what? Like guys, like this mental health disorder is no – it's actually not – that's not what it is. It's actually a response to trauma. And the problem is there's so much money invested in making sure people get their medication that you know um, it, it's uh, slowly changing. But I, you know, that, I, I think I revised my earlier answer. If we could just get rid of the DSM and make it trauma-informed, that would probably be one of the biggest things that would ever happen. William James, who was the father of psychi- psychology, you know, called psychology a soft science in an 1890s paper at Harvard because they couldn't measure these things, but we can measure it now. And so we have this like infectious disease mindset, which is you have this acute thing that you need to take a medicine for to make it go away, but we're applying it to a chronic illness or chronic mental health illness um, uh, world, and it's just different rules. And so we have to change the way that we approach um, you know, working on uh, diagnosis, whether it's a chronic illness or a mental health diagnosis, because an infectious disease model will not cure a chronic illness. It just won't. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? I think a fulfilled life is a is a healed life and where you're able to have, have healed yourself enough that you can really focus on serving other people and realize that part of healing yourself is serving people so you don't wait to heal. You, you, you see it as one and the same. And what is one thing our listeners can start doing today that have a positive impact on their lives? I think um, it's important to start to see all of the responses that you're having and the feelings that you're having when you're feeling stressed or depressed or anxious or angry, not as sort of this pathology that something's wrong with you, but as an appropriate response to an underlying dysfunctional pattern and to start to get curious about what that pattern is.
Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? Yeah, so um, I have a book that walks people through this process, and there's a coaching, there's a free coaching process with it too. It's claimyourpowerbook.com, where you can really identify this stuff. And the Claim Your Power book is a really great companion piece if you're going to go do trauma-informed therapy or EMDR or functional medicine or any of, that, any of those processes that, for healing. The Claim Your Power book, we've had so many therapists like tell us, like, oh my God, like, my clients get things done faster because this book helps us get so much clearer, so much quicker. So it's a great companion piece. And uh, there's a free coaching course with it, cleanyourpowerbook.com. And then just at Mastin Kip and mastinkip.com on all the social networks and all that jazz. Mastin, thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a it. pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Great questions and had such a great time today. Thank you so much. 